Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. It's great to be back. Season 2 is here. It's happening. AMAC led things off a couple weeks ago talking about what it's like to run a music festival. If you've ever been interested in something like that, check it out. He also tours uh, DIY with his band, AMAC in the Height. Go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. My guest today is Clark Hagen. That's how we met. There was an alumni reunion of the Claim Jumper Ensemble. I was in the group at the time, and he was playing in uh, one of the alumni groups. I don't remember if these, it was the late 80s or the early 90s alumni group, but Clark was there, and so we, we got to play a little bit and meet each other, and we've just seen each other around town a lot ever since. Uh, he does does sound at places. He uh, writes songs with people. He, d- he does all kinds of stuff. He's been in the scene forever. After attending CU Denver, he followed a professor for an internship uh, in Kentucky and then ended up in Nashville and actually ended up getting hooked up with a little artist called Chet Atkins. And he won a Grammy uh, for engineering his 1996 record, Almost Alone. That record, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. There's some great tunes on there. One song you definitely know is one called Jam Man, and that's because it was used in the insurance commercial about, you know, 200,000 million times. I can't sing the riff or give you a play of it because I don't want to get sued, but Jam Man by Chet Atkins. If you're over the age of 15, you've heard that song uh, a bajillion times on TV. He also engineered a record uh, a year later as a collaboration between Chet Atkins and Tommy Emmanuel, the day Finger Pickers took over the world. And he actually got to play a little guitar on that record as well. How cool is that? Anyway, I've admired Clark for a long time. We've been buddies for the last few years. I haven't gotten together with him in a while, so I was super excited to have him over to the house. He came down to the basement, and uh, and we chatted for a while, and our conversation is all over the place. We talk about all sorts of different things, but it's all good stuff, and, and I think Clark has a great story. And if you're a, a young up-and-coming musician, a recording engineer in the Denver area, he's a great guy to know. And just a great guy to connect with, all around good dude. So, anyway, oh, before I jump into it, I suppose we should thank our sponsors. Uh, let's first start off with PQ Mastering. Patrick at PQ Mastering puts the finishing touches on this podcast. For any audio restoration needs, you can go to his website, www.pqmastering.com, and get his whole scoop. He's a nice guy. He does a lot for this podcast besides just master it. So shout out to Patrick. And we have a brand new sponsor. Drumroll, please. Let's welcome Narrator RF to the Middle Class Rockstar team. If you need music in your ad content or video, check out NarratorRF.com. They offer simple and affordable licensing on exceptional music for sync. This is a cool thing. I actually... Uh, have composed a few songs for the Narrator RF catalog. Basically, if you need a song for anything, say you're a YouTuber and you need an intro song or you're a podcaster and you need some music, you can go to NarratorRF.com and type in what kind of music it is that you're looking for, and a few samples will pop up. If you like it, you can purchase it. And now it's royalty-free, so it's not gonna. you don't have to pay a composer and spend a whole bunch of money. It's very affordable. I think the packages go anywhere from 50 to 200 bucks or something like that. I don't know off the top of my head, but you can get music legally uh, for your content. So check it out, and thanks to Narrator RF for becoming a sponsor this week. We sure appreciate it. All right, without further ado, my interview with Clark Hagen. Let's get into the show. When I do that, I always uh, accidentally have a a click track on when I press record, but that's not relevant (laughs) for this conversation unless you want to speak at a certain... Temp 
info. Yeah. Like, you want me to see? Yeah. Well, I thought this was a no-click zone. This, uh, that's what I, that's punk rock down here. Okay, good. Yeah, this is the, this I is like the pad. <laughs> um, well, so I'm here with Clark Hagen. We're going to chat about all kinds of stuff. He's a Grammy winner. He's comes homegrown from the Denver scene. He's back in the Denver scene. He's done a bunch of cool shit. So, so let's chat. Uh, give me just a quick recap of childhood because you're from here originally, correct? Correct. I'm a, a Colorado native. Um, I was born in 1967, so I was still a child when a lot of great music was going on. But uh, nice. I uh, went to a Cherry Creek High School. I then uh, graduated there and went to the University of Northern Colorado because I had a hard time getting into some other colleges and uh, thought I was going to be a geologist and then said, oh, here's a program down at the University of Colorado Denver with a music program that has an engineering major. Maybe I should go check that out. So I I transferred from uh, UNC and, and went to school at the University of Colorado, Denver, uh, which uh, was started by Roy Pritz, kind of getting a, a thing going where they wanted to teach musicians how to run uh, recording gear, because before, mostly the cats that were doing that were communications majors, not actually music majors. And no kidding. Uh, at the time I went to college down there, there's only three universities teaching that, and that was Miami. Berkeley and the University of Colorado at Advance. So they used to call us the big home of the big three or something like that. And uh, one thing that also intrigued me to, to um, go to uh, school at the University of Colorado Denver was uh, Roy Pritz had gotten uh, this very famous uh, engineer, Bill Porter, who uh, worked with Chet Atkins at Studio BRCA in Nashville uh, from 1959 to 1964. And he recorded all the hits from the Everly Brothers Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman, Elvis Presley. Wow. I mean, the list goes on. And so I was like, oh my God, if I'm really going to learn how to make records and stuff, this is where I want to go. And I was always amazed that, um, you know, there, there's my professor that had these uh, accolades that, uh, you know, I was going to learn how to make records. At CU from. Denver. And that was CU Denver. And you, what year did you start at UCD? I started UCD in 1987. 87. And so they had just been given uh, all the recording equipment from Caribou Ranch that had burnt down in 85. Uh, the year before. So that's when the University of Colorado got the old Neve console and they got all these 3M tape machines and the Moog synthesizers. Is any of that stuff still in our studio? Some of the stuff is, some of the synthesizers are, but uh, the tape machines are all gone. Um, They got the Olive console that I was gifted uh, to me from Roy Pritz. Uh, The Neve they sold uh, to Vintage King and then bought the new Neve console that then the uh, ceiling crashed down on here just recently. Yes, And then right. they bought a new uh, SSL uh, console, I believe, that, to replace that too. Um, but uh, as far as some of the other stuff, the microphones, a lot of the microphones at UCD are from Caribou Ranch. So, and those have some history recording some really big hits. Yeah. That, that the kids could use. Probably got a lot of chapstick on them. Right, or something. <laughs> <laughs> so. And were, you were... Uh... You were a claim jumper too. That's correct. I got. I, I had a buddy of mine that was a, the a trombone player. His name's Chris Downs, and he's a real good friend of mine. And uh, he said, uh, "Hey, we need a, a banjo player in the claim jumpers." And I'm like, "Well, I don't know how to play the banjo." He's like, "You can tune it like a guitar." And I'm like, "Oh, okay." And it was a tenor banjo. So it was a four string banjo. And so I got into the claim jumpers, and with Bill Clark, because Bill uh, was also one of my instructors there. Bill was teaching then. Yes, he started correct. the ensemble, probably. Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. that's correct. And so I, I got in the ensemble with a guy named Jeff Cook, and actually a uh, Gene. Schroeder, who's in Devochka, was in my Claim Jumpers band. And Jeff Cook. Yes, yes, he was a I, bass player, and he was before okay. Jeannie. Okay, and, and then Jeannie took over and on Jeannie took the, the next year, which was great, and um, uh, we had we had some good times with Jeannie. I, I'll oh tell you a gosh. funny story about that in a second here, but uh, I got into the Claim Jumpers, and and it was great because it, I was doing punk rock at the time. Yeah, and getting into the Claim Jumpers challenged me as a musician to really learn different chords and different chord uh, progressions and all of that. That was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy, and and I got in totally into it. And the funny thing was, is um the my last year there, we got into the Sacramento. Uh, jazz festival they only invited uh three bands um from college universities in all of america for this big uh, uh dixieland jazz fest and stuff yeah. and, and that's when i got to um uh, play with genie and stuff was in the band at that time and and i always got a little funny story i tell genie i said well chris was uh having some fun with uh, the piano player girl and they they and so i was uh rooming with chris and so chris goes in last night he's like hey man would you know mind uh, staying with Jeannie or something and you know because me and Karen want to you know have some fun together I'm like oh yeah sure okay so I we're getting all drunk and stuff and I, next thing I know I'm, 
I come to a genie's room and I just pass out on the bed and seven genies trying to talk to me and blah, blah, blah. And little did I know that genie would go on to be a, a rock star in Dvotchka and stuff. So I always give her a hard time. I go, you know, you're the first rock star I ever slept with, even though nothing <laughs> happened. But, you know, hey, it was pretty cool. So me and genie always laugh about that because I'm, I'm, awesome. I'm so proud of where yeah. she's gotten because when she was playing tuba and stand-up bass with us, she was really uh, timid, you know, and it was funny. And, and we always told her, I said, hey, you know, we didn't want to like, you know, we were we were like bad influences and we didn't want to influence you in a bad way. So, and it's good. But I'm just so proud of her too because it's, it's amazing to see what she's done and just who who would have guessed, you know I mean? In some ways I think about that. And even with myself, I never would have guessed the successes I would have had in some ways. And yeah. so uh, when I got done with college, um, I- Well, and, and, and really quick, just to cut in that uh, the Claim Jumpers is a trad jazz ensemble that's been at CU Denver forever. Uh, and, and we both played in it at separate times. And I think we met at a Claim Jumper reunion show. That's correct. Um, at, that was at the um, King Center or something, I think. The King Center, yeah. And that was Bill's had, uh, going away party, wasn't that correct or something? It was or? Bill's retirement party, and yes. we had uh, bands, was it all-star bands from all the decades mm-hmm. or something crazy <laughs> like that. So That was a good time. That was awesome. That was, that was a great time. And, and Jeannie Schroeder of Devodka was in that group, yep, yep. and lots of other cool people have come out of that group. And I wanted to ask, is Jeff Cook, that's not the same Jeff Cook that does radio promo in, in Atlanta now? I I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, I don't think so. I didn't think he was from here, but I just... Jeff Cook's a common name. It's, yeah. There's 80 well, he, of them in the phone book. He spells with a G, but... so it's like G-E-O-F-F, not oh. J-E-F-F-F. So. Oh, Geoff Cook. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I knew I knew Jeff, like, even in, in middle school, playing in a band with him and, and how that happened. And even another guy, uh, Jim Scarborough, who's not around, who I went to high school with in seventh grade, that, you know, we were all together down there at, at UCD and having a great time. And I, wow. the interesting thing, too, is I tell people when... Uh, I was there like my second year classes. I might have had 15 people in my classes learning engineering two with Bill Porter. So you really had a lot more time to be in, in the uh, um, core to you know work on your your um, uh, your skills and, and things like that, which was great. And I think it's hard now because they have so many kids in there now because they've opened the school up to where you don't have to be a music major and things like that to take the engineering classes. That it, it, it does make it a lot tougher. I think yeah. some ways. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So uh, towards the end of your college career, you had an internship opportunity out in Louisville, correct? That's correct. I um, uh, I, I had a few friends um, my senior year that we had to do an internship, and a few guys went out to Los Angeles, and they were checking out the big studios. And it was kind of funny. They'd come back, and I'd say, well, how was it? Like, well, I was out there, and they'd like they'd say, here we are at the record plant, and they'd open the door into the A room. They'd say, hey, you can only look in because it's a closed session, and we can't go in there, and blah, blah, blah. So they'd shut the door. Then they'd go to the B room. Like, here's our B room, but you can't go in there because that's a closed session, too. And he says, the next thing I know, I'm out there sweeping the parking lot with the intern. And I'm like, wow. Wow, that sounds like a great internship to go out and do. And he's like, well, it's just how it was because, you know, with the closed session, you can't get in the studio. So I am, um, uh, Bill Porter had left the year before I had uh, graduated and he got, took a job out at uh, Louisville, Kentucky at a place called Alan Martin Productions. And they were doing uh, uh, videos for uh, Chevron Oil and for Kentucky Fried Chicken because they're in Louisville, Kentucky. And so I said, I want to come out and do an internship where I'm going to learn something and I want to come away with some knowledge and stuff. He's like, okay, we'll come out here for two weeks. You got to pay for your airfare. You got to pay for your apartment stuff. And, and I did that over my Christmas break that we had. And I went out there, and uh, for the two weeks, they had me working on stuff, fixing cables. The first thing I remember them doing was having me align a 24-track analog machine, which I kind of knew some knowledge from Bill on how to do, but I had to laugh yeah. at that. And then uh, so after the two weeks had passed and everything, they said, hey, you know, we'd really like to offer you a job here when you graduate uh, in college in the next semester, but you have to graduate, otherwise we don't want to give you a job and this and that. So, so you did need your degree for yes, your first job in yes, the industry. Yes, I sure did. And so I went back to, to school, and I, I really I kicked it into gear and made sure I, I graduated and all that. And, and what, was, what was the uh, actual degree in? I got a, a Bachelor's of Science in Music with a major in engineering is okay. what title is and i know that's not around so anymore. you op- you open the envelope <laughs> yes right right and that that's what i think is funny because we don't have really a, a, a music uh a school there anymore it's now become part of the arts and media department now. yeah so they were separate when i was going to school there the art department was separate from the video department which is separate from the music department and and that was kind of cool and i know now it's all kind of combined um, which sometimes I kind of wonder about because it seems like some programs will get the funding coming in, but then they spend that funding on another program. 
instead of like the, the music program because really I think the music program is probably the one program that brings in the most money between all three of them. And you want to see that money go back into I'd like the music. to see them be able to buy new microphones or, you know, great recording gear or things like that, outboard gear that, you know, we could have. And, but that's just kind of how, how that's all, you know, changed down there for sure, um, which is interesting too because I think uh, when you had to have a music degree and learning how to run the equipment, it really helped you um, communicate with other musicians when they're talking about a five chord or a four chord or a minor chord. I knew what they're talking about. I could follow a chart. I could follow anything with them and have that communication, which was, I think, very, very important back in the day because that wasn't really happening back then. University of Miami was giving communications degrees with the engineering skills. So really Berkeley and, and UCD were the only two where you had to get into the music uh, school and as I was telling you earlier like you actually had to uh, audition on an instrument and if you didn't pass the audition they wouldn't let you in and yeah as I uh, told uh, you a little earlier that I, I was bad at sight reading that wasn't quite my thing and so when I first auditioned my first semester uh, Frank Germans told me to uh, maybe I should consider the College of Liberal Arts yeah and so I had to, to get in and then but the next semester it gave me some drive to um, uh, get my sight reading down that I, I got into the program so yeah. And I think that sometimes we talk about uh, with musicians, there's nothing better than being challenged. Yep. And um, my family comes from, um, uh, they've been in the sporting goods business for 40 years. So my, my brother, my dad, my uncle, they were salesmen. They're not musicians at all. And I remember when I first uh, went to the University of uh, Colorado and I told my dad, hey, I'm going to get in the music department, get my music degree. And he's like, what are you going to do with that? And I'm like, well, I'm going to try to you know, make records and this and that. He's like, well, the only guy that I know that's been successful making records is Elvis Presley and he's dead. And I was like, thanks, dad. Right on. Right, right, right. But, but that, I got to tell you, that kind of talk really motivated me because then I became the guy that says, oh yeah, you tell me I can't do that. I'm going to show you that I can. Yeah. And that's what really made me then say, I'm going to just go, go for this and put all my heart and soul into this. And I think that was really... Uh, something that helped me be successful. I had the drive. Right. And I feel sometimes that as musicians, that's something that uh, we, people that really don't make it don't have the drive. And, I, sure. and I'd like to give you credit because I see you have the drive and look at what well, you're thanks. doing and stuff like that. You're out there getting gigs. You're out there writing. You're out there recording. You're out there doing right. it. And there's the big difference is the drive and not giving up and saying, okay, well, I put my two years into this and it didn't happen for me. Right. It never really quite ever happens that quick. So... No, I see, I see a lot of people, and we can we can get into this later, but you see a lot of people, I feel like I'm at a point in my life where I'm seeing people start to achieve those successes they want, which is really cool, mm -hmm. or quit doing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, a lot of talented people, too. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough to, you know. To well, any any art, is, art form is tough because it's not really a, a money-making thing like you becoming a lawyer or you becoming a doctor. And artwork is sometimes always tough to sell. We can make some great art, but, you know, for us to find a person that's going to spend the money on that, that's another whole thing, too, which I think, and people don't want to spend a lot of money on art nowadays, which makes it tougher. I think in some ways, as I've, I've said a lot of times, I feel that music has been downgraded as far as a valuable art form. And in some ways, my look on it is, is if we look at now, our consumers are like the people at 85% of people that don't know how music's made. That, there's, that's our customer. Right. And the way they, they get stuff nowadays is they got to have a visual now with it. So now as an artist, I not only need them to write a hit song, but I've got to have a video with it. Music video. That they can engage with it and interact with it. You know, where when I was young, we didn't have the video thing and or anything like that at all. So really music was more of a a feeling thing and I think that's something I've always loved about music and why I still do it because it always makes me feel good it always has I can pick up my guitar and play and I'm sure like you through piano you get done you got a smile on your face like holy cow that's that's Had beautiful yeah. what, what an emotional uh, strength and, and art form music is over painting or over sculpting and not to take anything away from it but I've had music played and I've had uh, chills go down my spine or hair stick up in the back of my thing. Yeah. I'm like, oh my, what was that? I've not quite had that happen with a painting or a piece of sculpt, sculpting work or anything like that <laughs> yet. But, you know, so that was something I've always loved about music is, is that that whole thing. And that's that's an amazing feeling that I know some musicians know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's like when I worked on a... Uh, I was doing a demo for Steve Warner that uh, Chet had hooked me up with, and it was a song called um, Holes in the Floor of Heaven. 
And when I was mixing this demo, I mean, I got those chills down my spine. And as I'm finishing up, I'm like, oh, my God. And uh, and um, I was like, that's a hit. This is going to be a hit. And I'll be danged when Steve didn't go out and he got a deal with Capitol and got signed on them. And he went and, and made that record, that that song was the big single off the, the record. Yeah. I was just like, holy cow. And just something I knew at that moment that I was like, wow, I feel this. Whatever the message is, whatever the instrumentation was, I'm I'm getting goosebumps or hair sticking up on the back of my neck. And that was that's only happened probably like four or five times in my career wow. that I've been doing for, you know, over thirty years now. So that 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 was awesome to me. Those those are great you just moments. Know. That's killer. Well, you think like, oh my God, this is gonna be a hit, and you think you know it, but then all of a sudden it comes on the radio and it is like, wow, I was right. It's a hit. Woo! Yeah, I felt it. I knew it then. And so how now? How can I make that happen with other artists or things like that? Then, and that's that's a big thing too. I think um, I love to do is to help try to to teach the younger generations on how to make great music and write great songs. And and I'd love to see nothing more to see than you know, catching your generation, be successful at what you chase in your dreams. Cause I chased my dreams and, and I made it happen. Um, and you know, like even with going out to Kentucky here, I'm, I'm working as a technician. Um, I got to the point that I became the studio manager out there and I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm like, you know, and this I, is, and this is your job. You started June 1st after finishing up your degree at right. CU Denver. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Went out there. And so I, you know, worked a year and a half as a technician and then the uh, studio manager, uh, decided to go off on his own and some other things. So I took that over and I was there for about, you know, almost three years. And I said, you know, if I'm really going to go do this, I'm going to go down to Nashville and chase my dreams because Nashville was a three hour car drive away. I had one of my uh, graduates that moved to Nashville right out of college to go down there. And he was working as an assistant. He probably worked as an assistant for five years before he got a, a chance to um, uh, be a head engineer. But he worked on all the Alice and Krauss records. Um, he did a lot of stuff with the Dixie Chicks, too, and they came out, too. And his name is Ed Simonton. And Ed, Ed's no longer uh, in the uh, the uh, industry anymore. He's, he's doing like a home, um, uh, I guess, home video and audio installations and stuff like that because huh. it, it, it's tough i i'll say one thing is uh i can give you advice on if you're really going to be an artist in this industry one thing you have to have is thick skin because sure. it's very very tough i think sometimes with artists we don't have that thick skin and then we get offended when somebody's trying to say something and, and really i think sometimes when somebody's saying something they're just trying to uh give you some advice or help you out or you know and and i always say everybody you know has opinions and it doesn't mean that they're right or wrong but sometimes it's something to consider because i think if we as artists think we know everything i think we're kind of dooming ourselves to fail a little bit because we're not open to learn more and i've always been a guy that i, I always feel i can learn more uh, yep. chet atkins taught me that is like you know he was never a guy that when you went to his office he'd be like here let me show you how that's done he'd put the guitar in your hand and say well, let me see what you got there and you'd, you'd be like, oh, <laughs> he'd freeze yeah. up and like, okay, but, you know, and then he'd give me some advice. I really always appreciate them because he was always learning. And one great example, when I was doing the uh, uh, record with him and Tommy Emanuel. Well, and let's, let's jump into that in a minute. If, okay. So we spent, you spent about a year and a half in, in Louisville. Right. And then is almost, that when? About three years, almost three years. Oh, almost years. three years yeah, total. I was there too, but then I was going back and forth with Nashville because I lived there and I would drive back from Nashville. I'd drive down on Monday to Nashville and I'd stay with Ed until Friday and I'd drive home for the weekend. I did that for probably a year straight. Okay. Um, I was able to make connections with uh, a guy, Kyle Lenning, who's the president of Asylum Records. And I, I worked on his studio and the next thing I know, he hired me and I was working on Brian White's first, uh, second record that went platinum for Brian. Yeah. And, and that was a, a great opportunity. Um, with Chet, I called up, you know, uh, Ed said to me, because we were um, installing a studio um, at Nightingale, and Ed says, why don't you call up Chet and see what he's up to? Because uh, uh, two years earlier, I had actually gone down to Chet Atkins' house with Bill Porter to mix a song. Yeah. And I and I was crazy, too, because here I am, a, a guitar player myself, and I'm in, I'll sit in Chet Atkins' house, like, oh, my God, like, can I touch that a guitar? And, you know, this and that. I mean, it was just totally amazing because i mean he's mr guitar and i got to i never learned any chet atkins technique or nothing i was a punk rock guy rocker guy i loved jimmy page and jimmy hendrix those are my idols and so to be around chet was a totally different thing but that's what got me my first introduction to chet and then two years later when ed says why don't you call chet up and see what he's doing i did and chet's like why don't you come over and hang out with me and so i did 
And the next and thing I This know, is before you've officially moved to Nashville? That's correct. That's okay. Correct. That's when you first got connected with Chet Atkins. Yes, that's correct. And okay. then uh, I, uh, he and says to me, he's like, Ray, you, you engineer, don't you? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh, well, my friend, Ray Stevens, engineer, just passed away because he had uh, something going on. He's in the middle of a project. Um, you need a job? And I'm like, yeah. He says, well, meet me tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock over at Ray Stevens' place, and I'll introduce you to him. So... Chet Atkins got me my first job as a first engineer in Nashville that I didn't have to go through being an assistant and working my way that route, which most of because them had you to had do. a connection with Chet. And, yep. and you met Chet how again? Through Bill Porter uh, a who year was and a half before. The original college professor at CU Denver yes. who you interned with in Kentucky. Right. And Chet had actually hired Bill in 1959 to be an engineer at Studio BRCA. Okay. And, 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 and Bill came from the TV station. He was the audio guy at the TV station at WHAS there. Wow. And because Bill wanted to start making records. And I really got to tell you, uh, sonically, Bill Porter's probably made some of the best uh, sonic records ever you go put on his Roy Orbison records a pretty woman or stuff like that it's amazing how they sound and it was all live to two track and, and Chet even told me that his records never sounded as good after Bill Porter left him in 1964 and it was funny because it was over a thing where he had started a publishing company with Anita Kerr from the Kerr singers called poker music and RCA felt that it was a conflict of interest so they let Bill Porter go and, and basically fired him because of that. But then Bill goes on to work with uh, Fred Foster over at Monument Studios and does um, Joe Tex and how about little Ronnie and the Daytonas. Yeah. Um, and it was amazing what he did. And then he finally went to uh, um, Las Vegas in 68 because he bought a studio from Bill Putnam, who's known for um, the Universal Audio um brand of recording gear and, sure. and, and stuff like that. And so and then Bill goes, this is a great one I always love to tell engineers, um, Bill did a number one hit, Good Luck Charm, with Elvis Presley, 1964. Yeah. Elvis Presley did not have another number one song until Bill Porter remixed Suspicious Minds in Las Vegas in 1969. And that, all of a sudden, that, that record goes number one for Elvis Presley. And so I want to say sometimes, if you don't think an engineer has an um, uh, input or a, a part of being something magical... There's a perfect example is because that's Elvis Presley. I mean, my goodness, from nothing from 64 until Bill redoes Suspicious Mind in 69. It's amazing. Wow. And the good story behind it, too, is um, it was recorded on 8-track uh, tape. Um, and when Bill got the tape in Vegas, um, all 8-tracks were taken. So there's no horns on it. So they hired a horn section, and they came in, and, and Bill mixed the 8-track while the horns played live to the 2-mix machine. And so at one point, I know uh, RCA uh, re put that uh, song out like down the road, like in the late 70s or 80s as a remaster deal, and the horns weren't there. And they're like, where, where did the horns? And Bill's like, where did the horns? You know, I can't believe they did this. Well, because the horns were only on the two-mix master, not on the multi-track tape. Right. And I just think that it's funny because I'm like, you know, you just sometimes how that kind of worked back then. And yeah. But I'm always amazed at, at Billy's Billy's credentials because, as I told you earlier, you know, Billy uh, had over 50 songs in Billboard's top 10 that he recorded. He had over 15 songs in Billboard's top 100 in one week. So, I mean, it's amazing the uh, um, kind of uh, records he was putting he was out. A, he was a CU Denver professor. That's right. Oh, that's, that's pretty right. cool. That's, that's way cool. I mean, yeah. we have an amazing history at our school that we went to that yeah. I think some people don't even know about or even conceive. As we even said earlier, um, in like 86, uh, when Caribou Ranch burnt down in 1985, Jim Gershow donated all the gear uh, to the University of Colorado. That All of a sudden, that, that put How us on cool. the big map. With Here we've got a Neve console that came out of... Uh, uh, one from of the George most Martin, famous studios ever. Yeah, that was yeah. you know from George Martin that he had from the Beatles that came from actually out of Apple sure. Studios. Right. And uh, we had an Olive console that was made in Canada that was like the first um, console that came with a compressor and a gate on each channel. That is now a standard norm, um, in, in our DAWs or whatever. A lot, a lot of history there. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, so let's let's go back to that. You've got your first job as an engineer. You got this hookup from Chet. Yeah. Um, through, I, I guess, a death <laughs> in yeah. some ways and being in the right spot <laughs> yes, yes. and having a good connection. Yeah. And and then you're a, you're a head engineer at a studio or a first engineer at a studio yeah. just like that. Yeah. And what were some of the first projects that you did? Well, the project that, that Ray was doing at the time was a movie. So it's a, it's a movie soundtrack and it was called Get Serious. Mm -hmm. So it kind of had some of his old hits. But, you know, Ray, I got to tell you this, something just about Ray. Ray's been a very successful businessman because he got into real estate in Nashville and he got Chet involved with that. So say if the records weren't doing so good, he was still making money. 
uh, as a real estate guy. And, and I remember like in like the late 90s, they did the uh, 50 Richest People in Nashville, and only three musicians made that uh, list. And one was Garth Brooks, the other was Amy Grant, and Harold Ragsdale, which is his real name, otherwise known as Ray Stevens. And he was worth like $55 million at that point. And My so word. basically Ray could do whatever he wanted to. He's like he, And he had Clyde Records, so he could put his own records out. He had a publishing company too, so very smart businessman that he didn't just rely on just his music to uh, make a career for him. And, you know, cause, and even Chet told me that he was the best uh, musician in Nashville. And I used to always go, the guy who wrote The Streak? Come on, give me a break, right? I found that out to be true because Ray could be the guy that could write uh, a violin parts. Ray could write horn parts. Ray could sing backgrounds. Ray could play piano was his main instrument but he could uh-huh. play guitar i mean just really you know one of these guys that was just really amazing and and i look at how long he's lasted he's like 80 years old i think now and <clears throat> still going strong started just built a theater in nashville he just got inducted into the country music hall of fame this year which is finally is what i would say because he's been around for a long time since the 60s and uh his first big hit was a had the arab which is probably done in like 19 19- late 60s and he played as a studio musician he was told me he's like you know i was playing a studio musician i got the point i said i, I want to be an artist and so you know he went that route so i mean i was really surrounded by some amazing people i gotta tell you just the right place right, right off the right off the bat you're right working bat. with him right and we were working on ADATS. In fact, I used to laugh at him that, but he had a vintage Sphere console. That was, that was an amazing console back then. And I, I used to hot rod stuff because since I had the technical thing, I'd always be getting in there and changing whatever resistors. Or I'd fix stuff. That was, he was amazed at that. He's like, oh, you can fix this stuff too? I'm like, yeah. And so anytime like, I was in a session, if something went down, I sometimes could fix it. So yeah. it didn't didn't blow the session out and which was great and i had a lot of people at other studios like woodland stuff like that where that happened on their neve console you know you always want to try to keep the session going no matter what you know you don't want to sit there and be like oh my gosh i can't do this because of that that's not the engineer's job it's like if you have a problem you need to figure a way around it so we can keep the train rolling yeah and that's always a big thing i think that happens sometimes too is we get into situations with maybe inexperienced engineers or amateur engineers that we have a problem They're like i don't know what to do we gotta stop we gotta you know blah 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 and that's a that's a definite buzzkill if you got the the mojo going at that point and i think that's a, a big thing yeah and we learn that through experience and i think sometimes that our hardest thing is when we get out of school is where do we get the experience from and how can i get the experience and and there's i come back to my drive issue there too is i mean you really got to have some drive and saying whatever it takes i'm going to do it because obviously i did when I got my job in Kentucky, a week later, I'm moving out to Louisville, Kentucky, and no questions asked and going for Just it. Just went and, for it. Yeah. And I think sometimes that's what we got to do. And when you're young, you have no responsibilities, you got to go for that because that, and you got nothing to lose and, and make it happen. And so by the time you're, you're the first engineer at this studio in Nashville, you're how old? 26. 26, my God. <laughs> and so you're, did you feel ready for it like you had the experience at that point or or did you have to do a bunch of unfamiliar stuff on the fly and and pretend like you knew what you're talking about until you until you got it i mean surely some things came about where you were like oh my because because you did go right to being a head engineer surely some things came about some troubleshooting where you said oh boy i haven't done this before i gotta figure it out I was scared to death, that's yeah. all I can tell you, because <laughs> I, I remember um, when I first went down to see my first uh, Nashville um, session, it was like with Tanya Tucker, and I was just there as a, a fly on the wall, and because my buddy Ed had answered me to come down, and I watched that go down, and I, I didn't realize how records were made. We're like, these guys never heard the song once. They walk in, they listen to the song, they write a chart out, and they go out to the studio and go, okay, one, two, three, four, and kick it off, and you're like... Oh my gosh, my first response, like, oh my gosh, a bunch of hillbillies do this? Oh my, this is crazy, you know, because never seen that happen. But that's how records are made. And it's like the first, second, or third take. And then it's amazing. You're just like, oh my gosh. And then, of course, they do some overdubs with the vocals and backgrounds are different. But for the main tracks, it was amazing to see that these guys had never practiced the, the song and never done it. And I always want to say that is so important because if you have a band that goes home and practices their parts and they get so used to it and you as a producer say hey that's not working like the drummer could you just do two and four and not all this fancy jazz stuff you're doing for them to get back into the groove of of the feel thing and this and that they can't because they've practiced so hard doing these parts yeah that they've committed to it we're like if the musicians never heard the song or whatever 
it's really easy for them to just say, okay, oh, something different, here you go. Maybe I don't like your guitar part. Can you play something different? Sure. How about this? Oh, that's great. You know, and that's a big difference. I think that some things we don't learn when we're when we're not in that environment is all I can tell you. And it's yeah. it was always amazing to me. Like when that went down, I was like, holy cow! Like I, I thought I knew how records were made, and until I saw that moment, I was like, you know, this is this is amazing to me. I want to be a part of this, and this is magic. And and that's when you're like an engineer, and what you're there is you're just capturing the magic. That's your job. But you got to make it sound good. But you're there capturing these guys, putting on this amazing performance, and that that was exciting to me. And that's that's kind of old school, but that that was so cool when that was happening that way. I wow. gotta tell you, so that's really neat. Yeah, it was. And and then you know, eventually uh, Chet then started using me after Ray said, "God, he's great and everything." But I mean, there were there was times, believe me. I mean, ADATs were new to me. I was doing a 24 track analog is what I was used to, not the ADATs, and getting up to date on ADATs and how they worked because we had like three or four that had to lock together and right. and that whole thing and then doing with a movie thing with the locking I was doing video audio video up in Kentucky so I understood that aspect of it and the time code and all that stuff. But I mean, you know, you're you're very um, um I was scared because here I am with a with a star and I don't want to blow my gig. I don't want to be a a, a dumbass that then he says I you know I I can have anybody I want and you're not the guy, you know, right. when you get the chance. So I really, I really had to come through and there's times that, you know, I wasn't sure about some things, but you know, um, did you lose any jobs? Did you ever have a time? No, when... I, I cannot, I say, honestly, I never, I never did lose a job that way wow. because I, I think I, I had a good personality. Um, I think sometimes that's a big thing people don't understand too, is, uh, you don't want to be around know-it-alls. Uh, when I went to UCD, there was one guy there that was the know-it-all, and he knew it all better than all of us. I got to tell you that. But I remember two years down the road, he'd be calling me like, "Man, I can't find a job, and blah, 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 can you help me out?" And I, I just kind of remember like, "Well, you know, if you weren't such a mm, a, a, a butthead to everybody, <laughs> yeah. maybe you would have gotten a job." Because he, I mean, he would go around school and think like, "Oh, I'm the man. I know everything." And I, I'm sure there's people at school that do that, you know. That, but I always laughed at, and I would say, you know, nobody wants to be creative around a. A jerk. Someone who already knows everything. Well, right, and yeah. it's a jerk because it's not you blow the you know environment, which is something. So, and I just want to tell people that too. It's like you know, don't be a jerk. Be 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 nice. Be trying to be help them do whatever they want to do. Go chase it, you know. And that that makes a big difference to be encouraging when you're trying to be creative. Yeah. Oh, that's a, awesome. Yeah, it's a big deal. So eventually, uh, a little bit down the road, Chet starts using you as his engineer that's correct and and little did i know that the first record i do with him was a, a record called almost alone and i i you know i did some overdubs and chet has a studio out at his house and he had like an old neotech console with a two-inch machine and everything and uh i actually recorded uh johnny gimbal who's a fiddle player from texas who played with bob wills and real famous guy and and little did i know that that record uh would win a grammy that year Wow, and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" So, and you um, were the, en the head engineer on that record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Chet did a lot of it himself, you know, because he was at home. He was almost alone, so it was just him really playing uh, guitar by himself and stuff. And then I, when he, I came in, I was doing some overdubs with him, and so for that. But little did I know that when here at, at age twenty seven, twenty eight, when that happened, that it would go on and. and when it went a Grammy, it blew me away. And Jam Man is on that. And Jam Man is the which for our listeners, if you don't know who Chet Atkin is. Chet Atkins, excuse me. You do know the song Jam Man, so press, press pause and go Spotify that. It's the song that, uh, whether you want to or not, if you're over the age of 15, you've heard at least 100 times on the, is it Esurance? Uh, yes, on the television for Esurance commercials. Esurance commercials. And they, they picked that up in 2011 as their theme song and used that till about 2017. You've so. heard it. So you've heard it because those commercials are everywhere. And... I, you know, you always look forward to those commercials coming on because it's such it's such a catchy little guitar riff. I wish I would have been a songwriter and wrote that song. That'd have been good payola on that one, right? No kidding. <laughs> right, right. You're not getting back end on that, no, probably. Unfortunately, not because <laughs> I didn't write the song. That's why I always try to say, you know, the, the money's in the songwriting more than anything. So. Well, I'm, I'm sure that song's been played from that commercial alone millions of times. Yeah, they, right? I, I think I, it was like about five years ago. I, they, someone had told me it played over five million times on national television. Oh I was just my like, word! Oh, yeah, right. Every time you're watching, t if you're that, if you're that songwriter on a song like that, every time the TV comes, <laughs> you say, "Cha ching, baby." Yeah, and and I and I think that's kind of sad in the situation we are now with the song right now because how we're 
we're not getting paid like we should for streaming and so forth like that. And I think that's terrible. Um, we're really being taken advantage of as songwriters and musicians on that aspect by not getting paid um, what we should be getting paid. And I think that's terrible too. But maybe we can change that. I'm hoping we're working, you know, to get that. To what happen. What is the solution in your opinion? If if we're not getting, you know, what we're getting fraction of a penny on Spotify plays, what is the solution for Spotify? to be able to pay artists more in your mind or, I think, or they should pay him, I think they should pay him a penny a play. <laughs> I think that would be fair because they that, should just do it. Yeah. Because I think it, yeah. it's so, I mean, when you're talking at point zero 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 six of a cent for one play or, you know, my, my friend, Brady Cobb, who wrote the Mississippi squirrel with Ray Stevens says to me that, you know, when I, I get over a million downloads or a million plays or whatever, and, um, and I'm making uh, a quarter of what I used to make, I think that's that's really pitiful in a lot of ways. I mean, I just want to say, you know, you work hard at your your uh, art and your skill, and you should be reimbursed for it, and so that you can keep doing it. But when you're making that kind of money, it makes it very hard uh, for artists to get out and 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 be able to perform or be able to to play. Because now I think today artists have to figure out how to come up with money to perform and to play. They have to be the bank guy. There's not going to be somebody that's going to invest in it because. How am I going to see a return on my investment with you? And right. and that becomes a problem. So then artists got to figure out how to come up with these, a lot of money, thousands of dollars to put product out there, to buy merchandise, to go on the road, to pay for the room and board. And it's, sure. it's hard. And Everything so, goes back into my career, I'll tell you that. Right. And, and it ha- All it my has teaching to. money. <laughs> right. And I mean, in some ways, I, I think about that too, that, that even when I was recording, I, I did that too by buying gear or, you know, buying guitars. And yeah, smarts, I could I could write it off. You know, with my my thing, but then again, I was I was some at some points on some master sessions. I was making a thousand dollars a day as an engineer, wow. and that's when they're spending. You know, an average country record back in the nineties, they're probably spending three hundred thousand dollars on artists just in the studio alone. Was was the budget no for that? Shit. And they ba- and this wow. is crazy. I tell people they had a uh, late nineties. It was like a one in nine ratio of artists that made it for artists that they were developing. So when they're developing nine artists and the Dixie Chicks hit it, <laughs> well, the other eight artists that didn't really make it big, that at least the Dixie Chicks paid for that. But now um, that's why labels aren't developing artists anymore. And they want you to develop yourself to get your fan base up to 10,000 and blah, 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 before they want to look at you. Man, does that make it hard on the artist too? Of to- course. Well, I, I think you're, you're on the ground level. You're on the ground. You're in the trenches for a very, very long time mm-hmm. before you mm-hmm. can even peak up. Yeah, you know? exactly. And it's hard for me because I, I was right at the end of the old school way of doing things. Sure. And now it's a new school way of, of how things are done, which is interesting because it was it was exciting up seeing up and coming artists well, you know, make it and, well, and go the, through it. In the new school way, I, I do think has has plenty of advantages. that, And I wasn't around in the old school way. I've grown up in the new school way, Correct. so I probably just have a different uh, I have less knowledge than you do, so a different way of looking at it. But, um, you, you know, the cool thing, too, is that y- you don't have to get signed to be developed to be the one in nine. You Correct. Can, I can Correct. sit here with my uh, little Apogee quartet mm-hmm. and dink around, and that's that's a thing that maybe we didn't have as much opportunity to do mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. ago. Well, but know? I think some ways, too, you, you obviously— yourself with your career you uh, hired chris daniels to produce you at some point you right. didn't you didn't fall into like i'm going to do this myself and i'm going to write the songs i'm going to engineer and i'm going to produce myself i'm going to sing everything play all the instruments and right and that's where we kind of missed that i think we really want to uh come up with an approach that that um as i said earlier uh, the people we try to sell our product to is the average consumer that has n- knows nothing about music they don't know how to play a guitar they don't know how to play a piano and that's 85 percent right. of our consumers are that people right there right and so without that knowledge i think all they know is where they can bang their head or they tap their foot yeah so that's a feel thing and then that's where we come with an engaging thing that a song that that they can sing along with with a good melody and doesn't maybe have a lot of words because if you get too wordy how am i going to remember the words and right having a hooky chorus that comes back to that i can remember the chorus so it's it's funny how our our consumers are not that knowledgeable on 
um, really amazing music. And, and so we kind of got to dumb down our music that we make so that they can engage with it. And that's really the hard thing, too. And I say with, with your our new school way of doing it, it's like we need videos with our music now yeah. for people to engage with it because they, they have no thing. other way to do it. And are there, because they're finding music on YouTube. And so on YouTube, it's, if there's not a, a video that I can engage with. If it's just pictures and stuff like that, I think sometimes it's not the same as if it's an actual video. And right. So there's another cost for different us. Different engagement, as, different as, cost for a musician mm-hmm, that's hard mm-hmm. to recoup. And I always feel like that, that you're better off nowadays to go into the studio and maybe cut three or four songs for an EP so that we have somebody to do a video with it. And then that way, if I can cut some more songs, I can put them out later. Um, I did a uh, band called Union Gray. And I knew the uh, artist's father because um, he'd come in. I had to work at Guitar Center for a little bit here when I moved back here. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, and I met his father. But I, his son, uh, uh, Scott Gray, said, came to me one day. And Scott's a little bit older. And he says, hey, you know, I really want if I'm going to do this, I want to do this once. And I said, well, let's go to Nashville. Let's, let's go take your songs. We'll pick them out. We'll go to Nashville. We'll cut them with some, some A-team guys. We'll go to a real studio. Do this right. We'll make this an experience for you that it'll be great and it'll be awesome and you'll never forget this. And so we went to Nashville. I had guys like Dan Dugmore who played with Linda Ronstadt. Um, I had Tim Atwood on piano. I had a, a Jim Moose Brown who's playing with Bob Seger right now wow. <laughs> playing keyboards. I mean, it was an amazing set. Eugene Moles on guitar. And uh, we cut 10 sides in one day, and I said, let's put out five or six, an EP first, and then we'll wait a year, and we have these other four or five songs to go that you just got to sing, we got to mix, and that way we can keep our, our audience engaged with new product coming out, because I think if we right. put out all 12 at once, then they're like, okay, I dug the first two, but they the other ones... They want consistent content. Yeah, yeah. And, and for us to be um, uh, um, consistent with new stuff... I think it's smart if I only put out maybe three or four sides and then maybe I'll put a single out in six months or maybe another EP in a year that that way I'm not just, I'm, I'm able to um, put out the best I can, but I'm not just um, a smothering them and here's 12 and like you might only get two of them and I hope right. so, but then I've got to come up with 12 more. Um, I think we always got to keep coming up with new product in order to keep our audience engaged in what we're doing and what we're doing new, which is something that's a new tactic in in the field that we're in too right right so jumping back to nashville here because i know we're kind of coming back around to denver uh 96 the grammy you get the grammy mm-hmm. for the chet adkins album and then in 97 you engineered another album for chet that tommy emmanuel it was a, a collaboration between uh, tommy emmanuel and chet adkins correct correct that's and was nominated pick- Finger, finger Pickers Take Over the World is the name of that. Yeah, with, that's got a crazy album cover. Yes, yes, and I actually got to play guitar on that record, too. You got to play amazing. some guitar. Yes, and, and but I will tell you something about Chet Atkins that I always laugh about that people don't understand. That man was nominated for a Grammy 20 years in a row. Oh, my God. So for the chances of me winning one were pretty good there. So And, and part of that was two of those records of the 20 was the two that I did. And he uh-huh. actually won like 14 or 15 Grammys out of the 20 nominations. Wow. And the sad thing is, though, that that was under uh, a country music instrumental. That category is no longer around anymore. That's a category they got rid of. That's too bad. It was. And I think, well, because, you know, you had Keith Urban and, and those guys. You know, those guys were, were putting it in there. Steve Warner and things like that, too. But it's funny how that was one of the categories they got rid of. I hate to say because that was kind of a part of, of that, you know. It's a part of country music. Absolutely. That, Absolutely. That... That way of playing, mm-hmm. the way of Absolutely. playing guitar that Chet Atkins sort of pioneered. Well, you know, it's interesting too. Is I, I, I don't know if you've seen the um, uh, new uh, show on the country, history of country music that they had, and I, I learned something off of that. That um, you know, uh, Chet Atkins, believe it or not, uh, used to uh, play out here at KOA Radio mm. back in 1947 and 48 because his brother Jim Atkins was the studio manager out here. Yeah, and he even had a, a I think a band called Chet Atkins' Country Mountain or um, was it? Uh, Rocky Mountain Cowboys or something was his band. So Chet was actually out here living on uh, West Co- off of West Colfax, believe it or not, for a while. But then he got hooked up with uh, Maybelline Carter and the Carter Sisters, and they were playing a um, uh, uh, one of the big shows out of St. Louis. And uh, the Grand Ole Opry wanted the Carter family to come, the sisters to come and play on the Opry. And, but the uh, Opry was sponsored by a different flower company than the one they were playing out in St. Louis. And so they had to kind of go back and forth. And then finally the Opry said, we want you to come out here, but we don't want you to bring your guitar player. And Maybelline Carter goes, what? Well, if you want us, Chet Atkins is with us. And they were worried that Chet was going to take the town over. 
and I guess little enough did they know that he would. And if you think about it, he was really a big influence on rock and roll, not just country music, with right. the Everly Brothers and Orbison and Elvis Presley that in, you know in, uh, influenced the Beatles and stuff like that. So amazing how a, a good old country boy was actually part of some rock and roll foundation as All well as the Memphis stuff. stuff you know, yep. yes, absolutely. So and it, amazing as a guitar player, but then as a producer. Then as a managing RCA, you know, uh, records for them too. I mean, just just an amazing man all around. I gotta tell you, how cool. Lucky. Yeah. What What year did you then move back to Denver, and why? I came back to Denver about two thousand two. I was involved in a car accident in Nashville, that I actually was in Vanderbilt uh, Hospital for a week in a coma, and then no I got kidding. moved out back to Colorado here to Craig Hospital for about three months. Um, you had family out here? Yeah, yeah. my whole family's been out here. Um, so I, I came, and my mom actually helped Craig Hospital. That's actually what got me in there to help with it. But um, uh, it was a real tough time because I had a, a major uh, head injury um, where uh, they say, uh, I tell people, it's like your neurons are connected to your brain cells. And when you have a, a car accident, sometimes the neurons rip off the brain cells. They don't reconnect like we would like a scab or something like that. And so sometimes your thought process isn't the same. It's like a bridge got blown up. And so for you to think about things or you to process stuff, that bridge is no longer there. you got to find another bridge to go figure that out. And I mean, that's even with walking, sometimes talking. I mean, it's, it's really crazy. It was a challenge for me to do that. So my uncle offered me a job uh, working with him in the sporting goods business um, to come back so I'd have at least some stability because when you're in Nashville, you got to keep hustling. And when Ray's not working, I have to find another gig. And if Chet's not working, I have to go try to find another gig with another artist or things like that to, to keep you know money coming in and, and keep up with what's going on. That was a little difficult. So I, I took the job with my uncle, and it lasted about three years, and I realized I, I guess being a salesman wasn't my uh, thing that I was passionate about. So mm. I kind of got out of that and, and then tried to start up again you know, here in Colorado, which was tough because then I'm not around the same um, – characters and um, levels of musicians that I was in Nashville. And these three years after doing the sporting goods thing, 02 to 05, did you feel like you recovered fully from, from the, from the injury, from the car, from the car accident? Are there still some things that you struggle with from the accident? I think that I, I that's one of the things everybody's like, Oh man, you're back to hundred percent. You're like, yeah, no, I'm really not. Because the thing was, like I got to when I, when I, the accident happened at one in the morning and I went down into this ravine and I was not found till six in the morning. So I almost literally, you know, died if I wouldn't have been found. And so that was a big thing, too. But I think you kind of get challenged with, like, everybody's always asking, you're not quite 100%, you're not. And I, a perfect example is I used to be on the diving team, uh, swim team when I was a kid. Right. And I'll get on the diving board, and I still go, do I start with my left foot or my right foot? Yeah. And, I mean, it, it's as crazy as it sounds, I have to, like, think about that because, I, I A, I haven't been doing it like practicing your guitar or, you know, yeah. when you practice, but sure. it's, it's funny things like that. Sometimes I'm like, wow, I, I you know, it, how that happens. And there's like, I say, the bridge was out to tell me, Oh, the right foot's what you start with. I like, yeah, I got to find the other bridge. And I was it the left and right. And you have to experiment with that. Right. I, I think that became challenging too, with, with the brain injuries that you had to um, reteach yourself everything. I mean, even eating or, you know, to feel confident again. So yeah. I don't ever think I'll ever be at the hundred percent I was at before the car wreck because I've had to re, reteach myself again it's like i almost became a child and had to relearn again which was interesting and but the the music didn't work that way i mean my guitar playing was still good i could hear well um as as i said to guitar players if you don't work on your scales you're obviously your scale work and your um dexterity is going to get down because you really have to work on that as a musician whether you're a piano player or a guitar player you have to keep working on getting the fingers moving and getting the brain talking to the fingers and stuff like that and so that was something that I really was challenged with to get back into. And then I found as I could do that, that made me more confident again. And that gave me my drive back. And then I really wanted to get into doing music again. And so I got involved with uh, John Macy. I got into doing some sessions. And John Macy was allowed me to use his studio and not pay for an engineering time and that and that. So that's kind of what got started for me because I had all this amazing recording gear. Like I still have like a U47 microphone, M49. Uh -huh. I've got some... I got, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I probably got probably 60, 70 grand worth of outboard gear. I, I think I probably have some of the best outboard gear in the state here. I'm probably in the top five or no six kidding. in the studio. And I still have a two-inch machine, and which I laugh at. But, um, you know, I just finally got into like, you know, I want to maybe get into some songwriting and, and do that and, and work with other artists because there's nothing more exciting than working with an up-and-coming artist and really help them chase their dreams because I would love to have nothing more than to 
see some success with an up-and-coming artist that, that could get signed, that could win a Grammy, that could sell a million copies or something like that. That would be awesome to me. And that's yeah. what I think still drives me even to this day that, you know, I'm not quite doing it as much anymore. I'm not working on my songwriting more because I, I think that gives me a little bit more instant gratification than uh, some things we kind of go through with, with artists because it is so hard right now, monetarily wise. And I think that's that's a tough thing. And so, so you've been, you're back in Colorado, I mean, I guess for, for quite some time now. Yeah, um, yeah I know. I can't believe it. I'm married and have two kids now that are like okay. 13 and 11. Oh, wow. no kidding. Yes. So totally, yeah. you've totally made made life here back in yeah. Denver. Yeah. And you're happy back here in Denver. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I do go do take artists, and I do go to Nashville. There's been about three times I've been able to take artists back to Nashville and, and do a for real deal with them where... They're around these amazing musicians, and it's always amazing to watch their mouth just open up like, oh, my gosh. And Check like, this out. I, I got to keep up with this, and oh, my God. you know, And, and that's, that's the greatest thing is watching an artist's song come to life. And Oh, of course. And, and so what, what's the main thing you're doing for work these days? Are you doing a lot of working with a lot of different bands in town? What's What's been what's the most recent thing going on? I know you're doing a lot of songwriting and stuff. Right. Well, well, I'll tell you that the one thing I learned from Chet and Ray, I got into the real estate business with my wife. So ah. um, she was in the, the mobile home uh, rental industry in Florida. And so I got involved with that with her. So that could bring in some stability for my family. Yeah. And that way then I didn't have to worry about who I was working with here in town and so forth. So I really started wanting to get out and starting to do some songwriting with some other artists. Um, one of them was Casey James Prestwood, which um, I actually wow. uh, wrote a couple songs with him that cool. are coming out on his new record. And uh, I even had a, a, a lady um, that I'm working with right now who's a lyricist, and she was just looking for somebody to put some music down to her lyrics and stuff like that. So I kind of wanted to challenge myself, like, you know what, I'm, I need some practice. I want to get onto this again and make this happen. So yeah. I just cut five songs with her on Sunday. Cool. And I got uh, Kenny Passarelli to play bass, and Kenny's played with Elton nice. John and yeah. Joe Walsh. And, Everybody. And I had Eugene Moles come flying from Nashville to play guitar, and I had Jim Christie, who's played with uh, uh, um, Haggard and with uh, Jim Messina, play drums. Wow. And that is amazing, because here's Helen, cool. who's the lyricist, and she's like, well, what do I do? And I'm like, well, get in there and just sing it just to give him a reference and she gets all nervous that's exciting to me and that's what really gives me some juice and do it again that hey you know being creative and watching people get happy and 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 we're really doing something here is great and she had some songs that were like you know she's got a, a song that we're doing that's, that's a me too theme and i said that's important to me too because i feel like um modern day songwriters are, are afraid to write about modern day Modern day, yeah. yeah. Sorry, did I say <laughs> yeah. That? Modern day songwriters are afraid to write about what's going on in our world right now. Yeah. And a perfect example I give you is um, uh, you think about Neil Young when he wrote the song Ohio about what went on Kent State where the um, uh, it was National right Guard yeah. shot them, and two weeks later he writes a song about it, and or. Ray Stevens writes a song about Osama, your mama, when we're over in Iraq and all that goes right. on. And, and so the old school guys aren't afraid to, I think, uh, talk about politically charged uh, things. And I feel like our uh, younger generation songwriters kind of are because we're sure. always trying to be politically correct. And, well, yep. I don't want it, me, everybody to hate me for that. Or did I vote for that guy? Because if they know that, then they're not going to come to my show or whatever. And that's Well, but then the in the thing I've been realizing, because I, I, you know, I grew up uh, – in this in this generation um the thing i'm realizing is the people that aren't afraid to piss a few people off have have more fans mm -hmm. because if you don't stand for anything people aren't going to love you or right. hate you and being and being in the middle it sucks right right you know if people hate you people love you too right but i always i always want to tell uh as far as our um musicians out there always think about what like dolly parton she says it's not about politics i'm here i'm an entertainer i'm here to make people feel good yeah so the politics thing should not even have anything to do with what i'm here to do uh -huh. i'm here to entertain people put a smile on their face and make them feel good and i've always tried to tell myself that's that's what being a musician and, and doing music is about yeah. so we're out there to try to get a reaction out of people that they they feel good they feel happy they smile on their face that's always the biggest payoff more than anything when we uh, make our art to me in some ways. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I love so, that. And that's what I'm always trying to do too. I always think about when I'm recording with artists or whatever. It's, um, I, I, I feel the younger generations of engineers, they rely on the Pro Tools a lot because they're putting stuff to the grid. And, and back in the day, we didn't have the grid. I had nothing to look at. I had to use my gut 
and my heart to say whether that was good enough in my ears, pitch-wise or whatever. And that was a different time back then. And I think that a lot of uh, young engineers I see coming up now, they're relying on the grid and putting the drums in the grid and this and that. And it really takes away from the the emotion emotion of it. And and we don't don't know that. So, And I think that's a, a thing that we're kind of missing in a lot of music that we're listening to today. Uh, because we're not capturing a performance, we're—I'm having to create a performance. Right. And I even say when I used to work on the analog 24-track uh, machine, I couldn't cut and paste. So when like a horn guys would do like a section, they go, "Hey, can you just paste that into the next chorus?" And da da da. Can't do that. We're on the analog tape. You gotta yeah. gotta perform gotta and do, do it. it. And if I hit record, what was there is gone. Yeah. There's, there's no like okay. There's another Let's layer. Use that take. But yeah. Yeah. And that and that that became a, a challenge. I think in a lot of ways. That's cool. So we have just a couple minutes left, but I wanted to ask you. Uh, as a final question, because you're somebody who who I grew up in the same environment as a lot of the listeners here, as in got, went grew up went to see you Denver, and you know that's. Uh, but in it, but in an earlier time, you've gone to Nashville, you've done all this stuff, you have a Grammy, you're back in Denver, you're doing more stuff, you've made new goals for yourself, you're raising a family here. What are the positive things about the Denver music theme? Uh, Denver music scene, excuse me, in your mind, and what are the negative things now that you've seen, now that you've lived and been successful in a major music market, being in Denver, back in Denver, what are your takeaways? Well, I, the, on a positive note, this is a great, great town to, to be able to be creative in. There's a lot of uh, things in this town and in this state that can inspire a person to come up with some amazing uh, creative ideas, um, which I think is great. Uh, things I think that are holding us back a little bit is because like there's not one studio in the state of Colorado that's comparable to an A studio in Nashville. And so when you start telling like an A studio in Nashville costs 1500 bucks a day without an engineer and you're going to pay 800 bucks for an engineer and you got to pay for the assistant that you're going to be spending maybe close to three grand a day just on a studio with an engineer and assistant that then I got to pay for musicians and stuff like that. We have no concept of that which I think is hard, too, of what it really costs to, to be uh, competitive. and But people in Nashville that are trying to make it, they move there, and they know what they got to be come up with to be competitive. I think that hurts us a little bit, too, because um, as musicians, I think we always believe... Um, I, I will use this lightly. The difference between art and commerce. Yeah. And and when we do art, my, my I have a, a 13-year-old daughter. She comes up with stuff. I love it. I'm her biggest fan. And right. It's art, and yeah, I'd buy it, but nobody else probably would. So I think sometimes as a musician, we got to think about commerce, too, because we've also got to make a living at this. And yeah. so I'm, I'm not selling out or whatever, but, you know, that sometimes that happens. And I always say to a band, a great video to go get is uh, Aerosmith, The Making of Pump. And it's a video of here Steven Tyler writing the songs, and then he put he puts them in front of the producer, and then they go into the studio and they cut the the songs and stuff like that. And there's points in that time where he doesn't have all the words down for the song "Love in an Elevator," and the producer says to him, "We've got a day and a half here. You got to finish the lyrics to this." And so he goes in and do it. Or the drummer who's been playing with Aerosmith since day one. He has issues playing with the click track that he gets so mad that he's like, well, I didn't need the click track back in the day. And la, da, 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 why you, you know, compare me this and that? And uh, Stephen Totter came up uh, with a great saying that I always remember. He says, it's not what you're doing is wrong. It's just not right for this. And, right. and, and I'm telling you what, the drummer went back in there put his cans on and kicked it out of the park with the click track. And I always try to say the click track is did it. the click track is really just a reference. You can play in front of it or behind it. It's not the grid. So there's where I get back to the whole grid thing is we got to get over is don't rely on the grid um, because then, then we're, we're kind of cheating ourselves and, and, you know, in a lot of ways because we're trying to make something feel good. Yeah. And I always try to say, uh, I'll look at stuff like if I, if I edit something on Pro Tools, I'm not looking at the screen because I want to look away and not know, I don't want to hear it. And if I say, if I have a visual of, oh, there went by, did I hear it? You know, it's kind of like a, it, it, it's a trick, trickery yeah. in some ways. Right. And that, then I'm losing the feel thing. And then, because I always want to listen to a song and go, how'd that make me feel? Did I make me feel great? Because if it did, that's awesome. That's what it's supposed to do. And I think that's awesome. a, a big thing I can say about doing music. We've got to have the feel thing. And that, that's what's great, you know? 
I love it. So a lot of great music coming out of here. I think there's a lot of potential out of here. A lot of it is the songwriting stuff. We got, I think the other thing I would suggest is we got to get around other songwriters and learn how to learn create our songwriting, not just be in our own closet. We don't collaborate as much. I exactly. Suppose. We yeah. need to do that. And I would love to see our community collaborate more with songwriting and so forth, even if you're just doing one or two songs with it, because we're only trying to make it better here. And that's why I think this is a great place to record. You can see that with Neil Young just did a record down at Telluride, and so did Dirks Bentley down at that guy's studio down there. So they yep. want to come to the mountains like Caribou Ranch. and They want to. And I always I was say this, like, you know, when we talk about a world-class studio, first-class studio, Caribou Ranch was a world-class studio because they would have, like, 10 snowmobiles. So if it was wintertime, the whole band could go ride snowmobiles. So they had 10 horses so that if you want to go riding the horses, you could. Or if you want to go fishing in ponds, that's a world-class studio you know, that where I get all these other things to do to be a creative in. And there's not a lot of few, very few studios that are like that I would give the world class title to. Sure. And and then we have a first class studio. And I think we're we're struggling here with a first class studio. We have some that are close, but they're not the same as they are in Nashville because of uh we don't have the same money being generated here with artists that can afford to go to those kind of places. So, yeah. Which is a big true. deal too. So I always say don't give up and the the guys that really make it are the ones that have the drive. And if you have the drive you'll make it happen and that's and I found out true in anything that anybody does in life whether you're a musician or an artist or whatever don't give up your 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 goals and and keep going you got nothing to lose oh I love it well Clark thanks thanks for all the great advice thanks for sitting and chatting with me it's such an honor to to have you in my bedroom <laughs> <laughs> well thanks for having I can, me I can tell people that we slept together too sweet See, that's gonna be my little you're thing you're so funny <laughs> but we weren't drunk at the time hmm well, we'll have part two. Okay, good. Yeah, after <laughs> afternoon. Awesome. All right, thanks, Clark. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. That's all, folks. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Clark, for coming on. I sure appreciate it. Uh, thanks again to our sponsors, our brand new sponsor, Narrator RF, and of course, as always, PQ Mastering. If you're interested in uh, becoming a sponsor or doing some sort of a collaboration with the podcast, please get a hold of me at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. Please rate and review and all that good stuff wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, also, please email me, middleclassrockstar at gmail.com for any questions, comments, concerns, hate mail, death threats. Send them my way. All right? Have a good one. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. <laughs>